Thanks, Corey. I thought we were going to get emotional there for a moment. <laughs> uh, nothing like being introduced with tears. So um, let's pray. And uh, I don't know what the Lord is going to do with this message, but um, obviously he's going to have, he has his plans and his will will be done. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your graciousness and kindness towards us. As we just sang, you've been faithful in the past. And you will be faithful now. We don't have to beg you to be faithful. That's just your nature. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. We are so grateful. We don't have to beg for you to be who you are. You just are. And we thank you for it. Holy Spirit, I ask you to take these words Help us to see, help us to grow, help us to rest, help us to have a deeper and richer walk with the Trinity. And that, um, as we learn from your word, we'll be changed. Be more like Christ, have more joy, have more peace, have more hope. We ask this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. I was telling my wife this morning, I've got three sermons bubbling around in my head. One that I prepared, and two that I didn't, <laughs> I think, for, the, for, for, our, for our best. and for Because I can, when I, if I get off, off track, if I get off point, um, we all get in danger. So, I'm going to stick to what I've prepared. And um, th- this, um, there's something about the Psalms that I think we can all appreciate. Um, it speaks to us where we're at. Um, it's, like, it's, it's interesting that it's right smack dab in the middle of the Bible. It's easy to find. And um, so this morning, we're going to be looking at a psalm. And before we get to this psalm, there's a phrase in the psalm that we're going to be looking at. And the phrase is this. No one cares for my soul. Have you ever felt that way? Nobody cares for your soul. Have you ever felt that, are you that despicable that no one wants to take the time or the effort to know my soul so they can actually care for my soul? The writer of this statement, no one cares for my soul, is rich. They have kids. They are in the midst of fulfilling their calling from God. And someone who continually stepped up when nobody else would. No one cares for my soul. The soul is that hidden part of us that few will ever see and few will ever know. The part of me that's messy. The part of me that's riddled with sinful thoughts. The part of me, the motivations, my anger, my fear, my doubts, 
my questions. There have been some significant leaders in the body of Christ that have left the faith. You probably know some of them by name. And is it because they felt like they couldn't bear their soul to anybody? So who is this person who feels like no one cares about them? Who was this wallflower? Who was this friendless misfit? Well, we find them in a cave. The, one who, the person who wrote this statement, no one cares my soul, he says this in a cave. A dark, dank hole in a mountain. He probably hadn't taken a shower in weeks. There was no worship music. No Bible, or at least there was no New Testament. Many commentators believe this could be one of two times that the writer was actually in fear for his life. Others believe it was just a time where the writer often found himself. So I started asking myself questions like, is there a cave that I run to? Where do you go when you feel like this? Nobody cares. This lonely writer of this sad statement wrote hymns that we sing. They wrote touching prayers to our God that millions have been provoked by to know this God in a deeper way. The writer of this statement had intimate times with the king of the universe, so much so that he would say it's better than all that life could give. The writer tasted the goodness of God and he said it was sweeter than honey. This writer in this cave knew God as their personal provider, protector, leader, and gentle encourager. The writer of this statement had thousands singing their praise with wild dancing and commotion. The writer of this statement had dramatic rise of prominence in their home country. And yet, this writer says no one cares for my soul. If you have all that other stuff, does it matter? If people are singing your praises and you have intimate times with God, does it matter that nobody cares about you? What is it inside of us that makes us go, yes, I do, it does matter? It mattered to this writer. And I think we're going to see it should matter to us. So if you will, turn to Psalm 142. And we're going to look at the writer of this psalm a little bit more closely. And I'm hoping this will provoke us in two ways. That God wants an intimate, real relationship with Him. And God wants us to have a real and intimate relationship with one another. This often feels more comfortable than this. Am I the only one? This, I'm alone with Him. This, I've got to get real with someone who's flesh and blood like me, and they're going to look me in the eye, and they're going to hear me talk. 
And that is the harder of the two, I think. And yet both are necessary for our life. I truly believe that the Psalms are the Lord's daily care for us. I don't think you can't read any one Psalm and say, and not say, yes, Lord, this is me. Or yes, Lord, this is you. The Psalms proclaim how great and awesome is our God. The Psalms give me someone I can relate to. So I don't feel alone or so broken that the Lord might discard me and move on. Have you ever felt that way? There's no, the Lord's got to be done with me by now. I'm so messed up. He's got to be done. And that's what's so encouraging about the Psalms. Did you see the people who loved Jesus, loved God with all their heart, and yet they were broken? And God continued to reach out. That should give you hope. There's people that have left the church because they feel like, I, I can't do it. And we should have come along and put our arm around them and said, you know what, you're right. I can't either. Right? Who's perfect here, anybody? If you raise your hand, <laughs> my wife raised her hand. <laughs> and I nod and say yes. <laughs> no, so it's like, I mean, the Lord will not discard us and move on. I think that can be one of the most debilitating parts of our struggle, the feeling that we are the only one. That nobody else can understand. Being broken beyond repair. So having no hope and having no one who cares. I'm gonna ask, I'm gonna ask some hard questions of myself and of us as we go through this sermon because it's gonna meddle with us, I think. I remember I was at um, Bible college, a couple, three, four, five, I don't know how many years it was, and we had really good friends. Well, they became good friends of ours from Germany. And the wife's name was Katra, and I said, so Katra, how do you like living in America? She goes, I found this, to, this one thing to be true. She said, when people ask you how you are, they really don't mean it. <laughs> I mean, Katra is a very tall, very dominating, you know, like very strong woman. And I can just see the first person saying, how are you? And she just began to bear her soul. And the people are like, no, 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 I really didn't mean it. I mean, I, I just meant like, hi. <laughs> it's like, so is there someone in your life or are you that someone in someone's life where you can say, how are you? And you stay. Or they will stay for you. I'll never forget when I was in another Bible school I was at, and this old saint, <laughs> he was addressing us, he goes, he goes, you need two things, you need to do two things in your life. He said, you must always go out and look at the birds, because Jesus said that, right? Go consider the birds. They, they, they sow not, they, bat, they don't gather in the barns, but your heavenly Father provides for them. How much more will they care for you? How much more will he care for you? I've never seen a sad bird. Have you ever seen a sad bird? <laughs> I've, 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 maybe there is one out one. I've never seen one the Lord provides for them so it's good for our soul to go look at birds and then he said this he said you need someone that you can open up a whole sleeve of Oreo cookies and a big glass of milk and you can eat the whole sleeve and not feel guilty and bare your soul he goes do you have someone like that in your life 
you know, you've already had six Oreos. That's a little much. <laughs> but I'm not done. I'm not done. Yeah, and the chocolates on your teeth. I mean, it's like, do, you, do we have people like this? And here, I love this in the sense that David had a relationship with the Lord. It waned and ebbed and flowed like all of ours. He'd write, Lord, where are you? Don't you care? My bed is a bed of tears. You seem so far away. Okay, let's look at Psalm 142. Right at the very top, I don't know if you know this or not. You're very well taught here, so you probably already know this. The top, the header, it says, A masculine of David when he was in the cave, a prayer. This was not added by the translators. This was actually part of the written word of God. So this is inspired. This little part right here is, is inspired just as verse one is inspired. So God is saying to us that this is a masculine or the word, the word masculine here actually just means a teaching. So it's, it's something that the writer has learned from life and a masculine means I'm gonna now teach you. So this misfit, this lonely vagabond, is none other than the apple of God's eye, the king of Israel. This is David, a masculine of David. This is the one, this is the shepherd who killed bears and lions with his own hands, who chopped off Goliath's head. The one who knew the depths of his own sin and the marvels of God's staggering forgiveness, complete forgiveness, as his sin was cast behind God's, behind God's back in the sea of forgetfulness. So this is a masculine, a teaching from David, really from God to us. So I'm gonna look a little bit more deeper at who David is, so again we can appreciate what he's about to say. So David knew what it was really like to be picked and chosen to do something for God. Some people will go through their whole life and never know this. Have you ever just said, I just wanna know what God's will is for my life. I just wanna know what he's made me for. Because once I get that, then everything's going to be fine. Once I get that, then I'll just, everything's, I don't have to worry about anything else. David knew what God called him to do. He was going to be the king of Israel. And yet, in the cave, he goes, nobody cares about me. So what, David? You're king. You know God called you. What more do you need? A friend. A friend. In the Psalms, we see the intimacy between David and God that we all long for. He knew that God had trained his hands for war. He had men around him that continually risked their lives to protect and provide for him the slightest whims. Again, the header says, when David was in the cave, a prayer. So we have a teaching from David, really from God to us, while David was in a cave. I like the little word, the, when he was in the cave. It's almost like when David went to that cave, Everybody knew who was about to get real with his God. 
And it reminded me of Matthew 6, 6, where Jesus says this. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door. And pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who is in secret, who sees in secret, will reward you. Is that a provoking verse or what? (laughs) The Father who is in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. What does that look like? And do you have a closet? You don't have to to be a literal closet, but do you have a room? Do you have a place where you go where you shut the door and it's just me and him? Let's look, at, let's look at verse 1. He says, With my voice I will cry out to the Lord. With my voice I will plead for mercy to the Lord. I will pour out my complaint before him, and I will tell my trouble before him. So now, we're gonna, again, we're looking at two things. Relationship with people, relationship with God. Now David is now going to teach us how to get real with God. And I think this messed with me on so many levels. Because when I was reading this and I was studying this, I go, this isn't me. He says, with my voice, I will cry out to the Lord. With my voice, I will plead for mercy to the Lord. I will pour out my complaint before him. I will tell my trouble before him. As I looked at these two verses, I wondered, have I ever really prayed like this? These phrases sound so desperate. Have I ever been this desperate? Will Christians ever get this desperate? And if we are this desperate, does it mean that God has abandoned us? Because when you're in desperation and you're crying out to God, there must be something playing in the back of your mind going, where is he? Right? Right? I think it's easy to think that God is with us when everything's going fine. The bills are paid, the kids are good, marriage is good, church life's good, God must be with me. As soon as everything, you you go backwards, we just filed bankruptcy, our kids have run away from home, I'm going through divorce, everything's falling apart. It's like, where is he? He hasn't left. And this kind of desperation prayer, I, so I think sometimes we think in the back of our mind that the Christian life is supposed to be free and easy. A road paved with gold and roses. As the scripture verse we read this morning, Paul said, fight the good fight of faith. It's a fight. Have you ever felt the fight? And we battle principalities and powers and the devil goes about as a roaring lion. Loved ones will die. The psalmist says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Some that we know will reject the faith. Some will walk away. Worldwide believers are being martyred, ostracized, persecuted, deprived of sleep and food. I think about our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan. You think they're sleeping well tonight? I read one article, this, one, this mother is saying, every time I hear a car go by or a truck go by, I'm waiting for them to come pounding on my door. 
Is God still with them? Has he forsaken them? Desperate times will come and go. And when they do come, not if they come, when they come, what do we do? The psalmist David, this masculine, this teaching, he's telling us what to do. First, you cry out to him. Which means, for lack of, you know, neither really the Hebrew to appreciate this word. Cry out means earnestness. And notice he says, with my voice. This isn't a mental prayer. How many times do we do mental prayers? And we call it good. Okay. The earnestness of David's need had to go beyond just thinking prayer. He cried out. I don't think I've ever seen or heard this done. And that is convicting. Is this what lament is all about? There's a whole book in the Old Testament called Lamentations. Lament, pouring out your soul to God. In our, in our desire to look dignified and all together, Have we missed out on this type of beseeching and getting real with the Lord? Maybe this is why David went to the cave. Maybe I can't be this way in front of you. It's like David is saying, I need to get real, real with God. And this is God telling us, this is how I want you to come to me. Cry out to me. Again, verse one says, with my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. Again, this word plead here means a humble earnestness. It seems to have the idea that we aren't demanding God to do something, but we are coming with humble assurance that our God hears our prayers for mercy. And mercy has the idea of not getting what we deserve. David knew himself. He knew who he really was. Not just a king, not just a warrior, not just the apple of God's eye, not just a writer of Psalms, but God's child who sins daily, so is in need of daily mercy. (laughs) We never get to the point in our Christian life where we don't need mercy. Well, I've achieved this and this and this and this in the body of Christ. David pleaded for mercy from the Lord. And could it be that in our severest trials, we see who we really are and what we really believe or don't believe? Because I think sometimes when the trial hits, it's one of those, as the disciples with Jesus said, I believe, but help my unbelief. 
Lord, I believe you, but I don't believe. Help me. Help me. This is too much. This is way over my head. I don't know what to do. Help. So God is exhorting us. He's showing us how to be intimate with him. Then the psalmist says in verse 2, says, I will pour out my complaint before him. I love this, I love this phrase, pouring out. It, it's, it's letting all that's in the container out. All of it. Pouring it, not just drizzling it. One thing after another, after another, after another. You're pouring it all out till nothing's left. Have you ever just gotten alone with your God and you're just like, I'm like, and it's all gone. Everything's gone. You let everything out. That's what he wants. I think sometimes we go and we still have these lingering thoughts in the back of our mind. So, well, he's probably too busy for this one. It's probably this too much. It's probably too big for, I don't know what we do. In our mental gymnastics, what we do in our head. God says, pour it all out. And what he says, notice what he says here. He says, he says, pour out my complaint. Now, this word complaint is an interesting word because what this word means, it could be translating babblings or meditations or that which deeply occupies the mind. What do you mull over in your mind day after day, week after week, over and over and over, the, you're, you're thinking about the, the ramifications of a bad decision. The what ifs, the worst case scenarios. Why do we keep those worries in our mind? God says pour them out, which means to get rid of them. <laughs> if I've poured water out of, the, out of the pitcher, there's nothing left. It's all out. These things, these, 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 the, 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 ram of the, the worries, the anxieties, trouble our peace of mind. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt the, what anxiety can do to your body? Oh, no, it's not, I don't know, I don't know, I just don't know. I just don't know, I, I can't, I can't. He says, pour them all, all out before me. It's like, here, Lord, all these things. All these things that are making me crazy. Have you ever said that? I've told people, say, I'm going crazy. Have you ever felt like you're going crazy? I mean, seriously. It's like the pressures of what, do I buy my house? Do I, do I sell my house because it's more profitable to buy a new house? And do I, would I buy a car or not buy a car? What, what college do I go to? Should, should my son be going out today or tomorrow? What do I do? What do I do? What do I do? I'm going crazy. <laughs> you know, we have seven kids. Most of them are adults now. I'm telling you, the little ones, that was easy. I, I thought we lost a lot of sleep when they were little. <laughs> you lose a lot more when they get older. And they can drive you nuts. And much to my shame, because my wife, I think, cares more deeply than I do, if I'm going to be real honest about her kids, she, buries that, she carries that weight. I just kind of like, I go off and, and snore land at night. Two o'clock in the morning, my wife is worrying these things over and over in her mind. That's what this complaint means. It's, 
It's these what ifs are making me crazy. I can't sleep. I have no joy. Have you ever allowed the anxieties of life to kill joy? Because it will. You can't have worry and joy in the same spot. You know that, right? Jesus said, I've come that you may have life. I've come that I've spoken these things that my joy would be in you and your joy would be full. You can't have that joy when you're, oh, he just doesn't understand how bad it is down here. I just got another Facebook post. He doesn't understand. I've got to worry. And it's funny, I, I remember when there was a, t- a season when I was out of work again. I think I've been out of work so many times in our marriage and it's just like, and, and I couldn't get a job, I couldn't get a job and it's like, worrying, worrying, worrying. And that's back when we were, when the Wyborgs were right behind us and our next door neighbor said, why don't you come use our pool? I remember floating around on a raft. And I'm thinking, I don't have time for this. I gotta find a job. This is crazy. Why am I floating around on a raft? <laughs> it's like, but all that I've done, I've filled out applications. I did everything. Like, I can't get a job. And like the Lord just whispered in my ear, be anxious for nothing. Don't worry about tomorrow. It's like, you don't understand. I got seven kids. <laughs> Joy leaves. That's why, could this be the reason why the Lord says pour them all out? And sometimes, every morning, you get a full pitcher. It's not that like you pour it out once and it's like, okay, we're good. It's like, isn't it just like the enemy to pour that pit, fill that pitcher right back up again? Oh, you got this. Oh, what about, oh, wait a minute, hold, wait. Where's your son at? Where's your daughter at? What's going on? Whoa. I just saw them with, with somebody over here and somebody, somebody whispered, Pour them out. Pour them out. Sometimes it's going to be like multiple times during the day. Lord, I can't do this. It's driving me crazy. I think that's a legitimate prayer. Lord, I'm going crazy. (laughs) Because you aren't smart enough to figure it all out. We just bought a car. Our daughter was in a car accident. We had to get another car. We got a car and it's like, do you you buy the insurance to cover all the extra stuff or do you not buy it? I mean, it's like so many different questions. (laughs) This one woman wrote a book for us, and I can't remember what it was, uh, uh, demystifying uh, decision-making. And she said, the amount of decision you make between breakfast and lunch is staggering. Everything from what socks do you wear, to what shirt do you wear, to what, what do you have for breakfast? Which way do I go to work? Do I go to work or not stay? Do I stay home? And it's like, it can be overwhelming. And your picture just gets filled up. There was a huge accident right near our home. Like the f- last, day of sc- last day of the first week of school. And Joe and I are looking at each other like, what the heck? Why don't they put a stoplight there? We gotta get a stoplight there. I mean, like, seriously, you can just fret yourself to loony bin. Can't you? So this masculine, David is trying to help us. God is trying to help us. Find a cave and get real. Well, then the questions are like, could I lose my job? I don't know what my kids are doing all the time. I mean, are you with them all the time? Do you love it? Do you have a little Android? <laughs> then even more sobering questions, like, am I really a Christian? 
Have you ever let that one play in your head? Am I really saved? I got a buddy who died, what, two years ago? Carried around his Greek New Testament. Was a missionary in Germany for years. Was the understudy for Wayne Grudem. Did all kinds of things. Dying of cancer, like two weeks before he was dying, he said, he clung to the pastor's arm and said, did I do it right? Is this true? Really, it's faith alone? Isn't there a checklist? I want a checklist. I did that, I did that, and I did that. I was in Sunday school every Sunday. I taught the kids. I was faithful to my wife. Never even kicked the dog. Does that get me in? No. Faith alone and Christ alone. That seems, and when you're on death's door, that, that wisp of almost nothing to cling to is pretty staggering. It's pretty shaking. Because there's nobody that can go through those doors with you except the Lord, if you're his. So then you pour that complaint before the Lord. Lord, am I even saved? I'll never forget, I was in a, a big church in Spokane, Washington. It doesn't matter anyway. So, and I was just crying out for revival. I'm like, guys, we're supposed to see revival. I was the only one in this huge sanctuary, sat about 2,500 people. I'm just up and down the pew. I was, Lord, do something. You gotta do something. All of, a sudden, all of a sudden, I felt like this presence came in the room that like laid me out. I hit the floor. I'm like, oh my gosh. Who's here? And all of a sudden, I started... <laughs> I went through the gospel message with myself again. <laughs> like, okay, now what do I believe? Lord? I believe I okay, I trust in Jesus as my Savior. Like, it, was, it was one of those times where it's, okay, and do you have those moments? Do you wrestle with the Lord? Paul said in 2 Corinthians, test yourself to see if you're in the faith because you might not be. And for you young people, you think you're gonna outlive me? I might outlive you. Do you know that you know? Or is this all just a game? I gotta go to church, my parents made me go. All of your complaints. Can I get a little bit, can I meddle in just a few more minutes? Even things like, what if I look silly in this new dress? Now, I, 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 wanna, I want you to see how personal the Lord is. Because he cares. He says all of your complaints. He didn't just say the spiritual ones. All of them. And that having five daughters can be a legitimate thing. Do I look dumb in this dress? Does that matter to the Lord? He says all of your, all of your worries. All of them. That's our God, he cares. He didn't just say all the important ones. Pour out all your important complaints to me. And then where are you, how are you gonna decide what's important and what's not? Is this helping at all or am I just kinda like, maybe it's just helping me. Um, what, I'm gonna get this one. What if I get a horrible haircut? <laughs> that probably landed on a couple people. And it's like, you know, you get, a, you get a bad haircut and that can last for weeks. It's like, oh my God, what am I gonna do? 
Does the Lord care about that? Pour out all your complaints, all your complaints, all your worries, all your anxieties, all your fears, all your worries. Pour them out to him. It's kind of like what 1 Peter 5, 7 says. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And again, this word all in the Greek means all. (laughs) All your anxieties. Anxieties that are spiritual and those that seem really foolish. Little or not very important. If it's making you anxious, cast them on the Lord. That's as simple, that's as simple as you can put it. If it's making you anxious, cast it on the Lord. Everything, I'm, I just got, I, I kind of meddled with myself. It's like, like, what if I don't have enough gas to get to the airport? Cast all, and that doesn't mean you shouldn't stop at a gas station. But I'm, you know what I'm saying? I mean, we can worry about so many things like, um, what if dinner isn't on time? What if I burn the dinner? Everything. But this also points to Hebrews 11.6 where the writer says, and without, fi- without faith it's impossible to please him for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So this points out an important point. It's like if you don't believe that God exists, will you even come to him? I think, I don't know who it, who was it said it, but it said in our, in our doctrine we're Christians and our practice we're often atheists. Yeah, I believe there's a God. What's your prayer life like? It doesn't, it's, and not a legalistic what's your prayer life like. Are you going to him? Or how do you envision this God to be? Is he too busy for you? Does he not care? This masculine, this teaching is to help us see that God wants this. He's not too busy. He's not looking at your Little problems is little problems. If they're making you anxious, come to him. This is Christianity. Then the psalmist goes, I will tell my trouble before him. This word trouble means tribulation, anguish, and distress. One commentary said this, This is trouble that could destroy the faith of many experienced Christians. If you are in a place of like, I don't, this is going to wreck me. I've seen this a lot with parents. We've poured our life into our kids and they've gone sideways. That'll devastate your faith. Your spouse leaves you. That can devastate your faith. Your little child dies of cancer. That can devastate your faith. I will tell my troubles before him. So again, this psalm is about our relationship here. And it's going to be our relationship here. It is not, I, I feel like I'm staying on this one point a long time, but maybe it's because the Lord wants us to. 
It's not our job to carry these burdens, to prove how strong or spiritual we are. You get this. You are not, we are not designed to carry these things. Jesus said, cast all your cares, all of them. Be anxious for nothing. Nothing. David is teaching us, or God is teaching us, exhorting us to go to God as we are, with no game face, no makeup, no pious platitudes, no rehearsed pretend prayers, no favorite scripture verses. Come desperate, hopeless, helpless, no seminary degree is needed, and you can be a Christian of two days or 40 years. Go to him when no one cares, when there is no hope. Go when you feel stupid for making the decisions that got you into this place in the first place. Have you ever felt that way? I can't go to the Lord on this one. I knew I shouldn't have done this. And you got people around you going, you shouldn't have done that. You ever had that? (laughs) We parents are good at that with our kids. Told you you shouldn't have done that. Go to this place after you sinned again. Pour out everything before him, whatever is weighing on you. Even things others may think are trivial and unimportant. If they are important to you, they are important to your gracious, loving father. Do you believe that? I think we don't believe that. I'll come to the Lord for missions. I'm going to pray for the world. Lord, we pray for the world. I pray for revival in our church. I pray for revival in our church. I got to get a haircut tomorrow. Oh, that's, that's worldly. Is it making you anxious? <laughs> come to him. He's talking about getting real now. He, he already knows what's in your mind anyway. It's so funny we try to play, oh, I'm going to fake him out. <laughs> I'm going to let him know. I'm not going to let him know what I'm really thinking. And yet it's that haircut that's messed you up for the whole week. When I know I got to go to the dentist, my week is ruined. <laughs> They're going to get that little pointed thing out. They're going to get that little drill out. For some of you, it's putting your, it's sending your kids to college for the first time. I've heard horrible stories. I've heard horrible stories. Not me, I'm not saying that, but you're, you're saying that in your mind. Are they going to leave the faith? And I want to point out something here that I think is important. <clears throat> this psalm that we're reading, Psalm 142, is very probably written after David's fall with Bathsheba. So for David to pray like this, he had to believe that the Lord really, really did wash him clean. David wrote Psalm 51 after the prophet came to him and said, you are that man. You slept with Bathsheba. You could have had anything you wanted, David, and you took another man's sheep. 
that could haunt you. Psalm 51 says that the headers, a Psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Can you imagine everyone knowing your worst sin <laughs> and then people singing about it? <laughs> oh, if Danny really screwed up today. He, you know, like, what, what is that? But to believe that our worst sin, the one that haunts us, then we go, there's no way he can forgive me for that one. It's after that that David writes Psalm 142 and he says, pour everything out before God. It's like, David, where do you have the audacity? You're responsible for murder. You, you took another man's wife, David, and you're gonna come before the Lord? That's probably part of what he was saying, I plead for mercy. So I don't know if there's, everybody, you're all giving me the blank stare. <laughs> we all have sins in our past. We go, oh boy, if anybody in this church ever found out about that one. God already knows, right? You can go to him. This psalm is telling you to go to him. Because in Psalm 51, David said, he said this, he goes, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. I think for some of us, it might be a good, for lack of a better term, habit before we actually go before the Lord is to rehearse 1 John 1, 9. If I confess my sins, he is faithful and just to forgive me of my sins and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. If I confess my sins, all I gotta do, I don't have to do penance, I don't have to cut myself, I don't do anything. It's like if I confess my sins, if I confess my sins, he is faithful. We sang about it this morning. He's faithful. Is he faithful to forgive your sins? We may think he's faithful to provide, faithful to you know, care for me and walk with me, but do you believe he's faithful enough to forgive that sin, that one? that you just did last night. He is. That's the God we serve. I think, I think the Psalms reintroduce us to who God is because we get screwed up in our head. Or maybe it's just me. I get screwed up in my head. Because um, it's interesting because the book of Hebrews says, come boldly before the throne of grace that you may obtain mercy and help in time of need. How can you come boldly before a throne? He calls it the throne of grace. Grace is unmerited. <laughs> you, don't go to him, you don't go to that throne after you've read your Bible, did your Bible study, did all your things, and everything's fine, and that's like, now I can go before him. It's like, no. Go boldly before the throne of grace that you may obtain mercy. Why do you need mercy? Mercy is after you screwed up. You're going to walk right into the throne room of God. I'm coming because it's a throne of grace. I'm coming because it's a throne of grace. I'm coming because it's a throne of grace. Are you going to light and bolt me? Am I going to die? No, I told you to come boldly before my throne. Deadness, why is this great on us so much? I think we still want to earn something. We want to merit it. I want to 
prove my worth that I can come. It's like, man, nobody, nobody deserves this. Nobody deserves to come before the holy God of the universe. And yet I invite you in. Every day, pour out all your complaints, all your worries. I don't care how small they are, how insignificant you think they are. I mean, I think sometimes in America we feel like maybe we're just, we're just like the selfish kid. I mean, you look at what's going on all around the world and it's like, how can I go to God about my haircut? When there are Christians being persecuted and killed in China. That's what I love about this psalm. He doesn't put caveats to it. He didn't say, just intercede for the important things. And that's to mean you don't pray for those things. We're almost done. We started with the phrase, no one cares for my soul. When we cannot find a friend who cares for our soul, we must remind ourselves that God does. And he has promised to never leave us nor forsake us. And he will stick closer than a brother. I truly believe that it is a scheme of the evil one to keep us fake in our relationships with our living God and human friendships. And David, or God through David, is making this a matter of prayer. He's pouring out this complaint, and maybe we should as well. So the rest of the psalm is not going to teach us, he's going to give us the prayer that David prayers, prays. And we're, we're, again, we're almost done. He says, when my spirit faints within me, verse three, you know my way. In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see. There is none, none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me, and no one cares for my soul. So David reminds himself that when he is weak, when he says, when my spirit faints within me, when he has no more strength, so much so that he is susceptible to bad decisions, even in things he knows well, when he says, in the paths where I walk, he says, you know my way. This is very intimate language. The Lord knows every little detail of our life and he will be there on the pathway. There is no step that we will take that he won't say or that he will say, oh no, I thought they were gonna turn left. This verse is to remind us that you're never alone. You're never abandoned, especially when you're at your weakest. You haven't read your Bible in weeks. You haven't prayed in weeks. You haven't been to church in months. And the pressures and the important decisions continue to mount. He's got you. And he says, come to me. You get that, right? You get that. You don't have access to this throne because you, got, because you went to church today. You get access to the throne because you're his kid. We, we get this, right? This is really important. Because you might miss a Sunday. You know, Christ, I wonder if, I can, I wonder if he's going to hear me if I pray. Verse four. I love how conversational David is with the Lord. Look at our verse. He says, David says, look to the right and see. 
David knows his God and king is alive and all-seeing and all-knowing and omnipresent. David is actually assuming that the Lord will see and look at David, what David is looking at. David says, look and see. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine just, just walking down the street and you, you see someone, just like, like nobody's with him. He goes, and look over there. And like, who's he talking to? He's talking to the Lord that's with him. Do you have that, do we have that kind of intimate relationship with the Lord? Well, we really believe he's that king. He, we can say, look, and he, like, we can believe that he's going to look. He says, verse four, there is no one who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. Get this, verse four. There is none who takes notice of me. Are you kidding me, David? The king of Israel. Do you ever feel invisible? You can be in a room and nobody even... You feel unimportant? Not worthwhile? Have you ever, talk, have you ever been at a, at a meeting or something and you're talking with somebody and they're always looking away past you to somebody else? How does that make you feel? It's like, well, I guess I'm not that important. They're looking for somebody more important to come along. The former president of Crossway where I work, his, um, she's the co-CEO. She is probably one of the sweetest. When you, when you meet her, they're both retiring now, but you meet her, it's like she is fully engaged with you. She knows, she doesn't think anybody else is in the room. It's just you. I mean, that's just the most amazing feeling. It's like, man, she really, she cares. Not like, hey, it's really good knowing you, man. Like, yeah, all right, okay. Uh, yeah. What'd you say? I'm sorry, I forgot what you, what, is that, what, what's that? David said, I feel like that. I remember one sports columnist once said regarding our sports heroes, we are a country who loves to tear down the idols we make. The quarterback that got us to the Super Bowl last year is easily disposable if his performance wanes in the third game of the next season. Then he says this. Can't, just hang with me. He says, no refuge remains for me. Now this is important. Oftentimes, our reputation, our success, our popularity, our looks, our strength, our cleverness is a place that we run to for refuge. Now, once you get this, it's a really important point. We all have refuges that we go to to bring us comfort. It's our, it's our strong suit, whatever it may be. It's like when I played golf, there was this one club. I, if I could pull that club out, I'd always ace it. But my, my golf coach always said, Danny, you got to pull out the clubs you can't hit. I said, like, I don't want to look. Those make me look dumb. I want the club I can hit. That's my refuge. What's your refuge? If your refuge are your looks, they can... If your refuge is your position at work, if your refuge are your perfect kids, your perfect marriage, your perfect attendance, That can often be the place we run to. 
our work, our home, our position can become a false refuge. And when all those things collapse, where do you go? False refuges actually reveal themselves when severe trials come. When the real trial hits, these fake refuges will not sustain you. Because they don't protect, they don't comfort, they don't care for us. We can't rest in them or count on them when we're alone. What you once were doesn't matter when the darkness is settled over you. When that darkness hits, it doesn't matter if you're the president of something or you are the big shot football player or whatever. And I've seen it. Have you ever seen like high school stars that never got any further than that? And they keep hearkening back to their high school days. Well, when I was a quarterback for the real, like, oh yeah, man, you're the best. That's a refuge. We run to that. Because this makes me feel important. Remember, I was a, I was a beauty queen. Yeah? Age has not always been the best to you. <laughs> I mean, not the kindest to you. It was that, is that your refuge? Have you ever seen like 50, 60-year-old women trying to still be like they're 20? It's like, quit, that's not a refuge. That is not a refuge. But they keep trying to make it a refuge. Sometimes trials are one of the best things that can happen to us because it reveals our false refuges and then points us to him, the real refuge. But sometimes it's hard to have our false refuges shaken. Have you ever been, I mean, had a great paycheck, I've got a great paycheck, I got a great paycheck, I got a great paycheck. Boom, business collapses. Crud! Has that paycheck been your refuge? Or has it been the Lord? And when our refuges, a fake refuge, crumble, that's when we find a refuge in the Lord. And then he says this, now we come to our verse. He says, and no one cares for my soul. David is surrounded by people, and I want you to get this. David is surrounded by people. He's surrounded by servants and guards and attendees. He hosted parties. He's fought great battles. He wrote songs for the creator of all things. He knew the fullness of joy in the presence of our God. He knew God as his shepherd. He knew how to pour out his soul to God, and yet this mattered to him. No one cared for my soul. And isn't this, I, I want us just to just think for a second and just really probe our heart. Isn't this the cry also in the heart of those created in his image? To know and be known. To have someone who cares about our soul. A healthy, I believe a healthy, vibrant Christian life on this earth is both, is both a very real walk with our living God and a very real walk with our living friends. And maybe this could be a prayer for us. Something we lay before the Lord. How sad to say at the end of our life, no one cared for my soul. 
But if this ends up being your lot, consider the rest of the psalm. David goes, I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge and portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring me out of prison, that I may give thanks to your name. Truly, hopelessness and despair and anxiety can actually become prison. And David here says, bring me out of this prison that I may praise your name. And then he says this, the righteous will surround me for you will deal bountifully with me. I love how this ends. God will deal with us in amazing grace and bountifully. And I believe that there is a bountifulness that exceeds material wealth, the perfect home, the perfect family, the perfect marriage, the perfect health, the perfect government, all are once granted. It may look differently to all of us, but I think to have a real friend and a very real intimate relationship with our God would truly be the Lord dealing bountifully with us. Would you say that? Would you agree with that? If I had a deep, rich relationship with the Lord and I had a deep, I don't know who was, who was that said it, but he said, if you die saying you had five friends, you died a wealthy person. Can you even name two? Like the real deal. Faithful to the wounds of a friend. Do you have a friend that will wound you? Or do you have people that just walk around nodding and say, oh, everything's fine, yeah, great, man. Go, man, go, yeah. Or do you have someone that speaks straight to you? Okay, points of application and we're, and we're done. First, don't be afraid to get real with your God. Now this is gonna sound <laughs> self there's a great book I read, and just because I work for Crossway doesn't mean, uh, that, well, it's a Crossway book, but anyway, anyway, deep, it's called Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, and it's all about lamentations. How do we lament? How do we talk to God when things are going sideways? We thought God was gonna be like this and everything's gone. How do you lament before your God? Next, push your relationships past the superficial. Get real with your friends. Leaders in this church. I don't know who all the leaders are in this church. It's often easy to feel alone and friendless. Pursue friends you can be real with. And if you are friends with those in leadership, care for them by being real and allowing them to be real. Next. Find your cave where you can get real with your living God whose ear is constantly bent towards you. Next, if you truly, if, if you truly not only feel alone but are alone, now get this, now remember David was around crowds. Have you ever felt like you're alone in a crowd? Have you ever felt like you're just like, why am I even here? Nobody even knows I'm here. You can be around people and still be lonely. Feel like nobody cares. Oh, he's the life of the party. Whenever he comes, everything's like really woo. Does anybody really know him? Can I push on? Can I get? Can I meddle? Just one more point on the on that on that point. And I think we all know this, and it doesn't even probably need to be said, but. Facebook friends, 
Why do we use the word friend? I got a thousand Facebook friends. Whew. Really? They know the fake you or the real you? We've trivialized friendship. It's interesting. Jesus calls us friends. <laughs> okay. Um, if you truly not only feel alone but are alone, and David's confession of no one cares for my soul resonates deeply in your heart, know that you are not unworthy of friendship. I don't know everybody here. And maybe you're feeling that's me. Nobody knows me. It's not because you're not worthy of it. It truly could be just a sign of our times. But ask and pour out requests before him for a true friend and wait for him to answer. I remember when our kids were growing up, uh, they might, our girls loved Anna Green Gables and Pride and Prejudice, but Anna Green Gables, um, she always, she wanted a bosom friend. It's like, that's a legitimate prayer. That's, uh, that bosom friend actually came from the old Puritans. The Puritans used to pray for bosom friends. <laughs> bosom from my heart. They know me. I've opened up 20 sleeves of Oreo cookies with this person. <laughs> and they still love me. <laughs> I mean, do you have anybody like that? It's like, like that, that's like, they still love me. They know the good, bad, and the ugly. And finally, a real and open relationship with your God is something that's wanted by him. And a real and open relationship is possible and wanted by other members of this congregation. Start with the awkward conversation with I really want to get to know you. The good, the bad, the messy, the doubts, and your fears. And I want you to really, I, and I really want to tell you mine. What you share is safe with me. The Bible says confess your sins one to another, pray for one another, and you will be healed. I know this seems like more like a practical exhortation, but I think it's really important for us as we, as we continue, as things get more and more chaotic in the world around us. Real friendships and real relationship with God. I, you can't put a price on it, a price tag. You can't put a value on that. We need it, right? And so let's pray. And I think we're going to close with the song. Is that right, Corey? All right, Lord, we just come before you and we thank you for your word. Um, <clears throat> Lord, this has been such a convicting sermon for me because I realize how often I'm not real with you. And uh, I let anxieties and worries drive me nuts. And how very few people there are in my life that I'm real with. Lord, we ask for friendships the real thing, the real thing. And we ask that you would help us to be real with you, that we would pour out everything, the small things and the big things for you because you care for us. Please, Lord, answer our prayers. We thank you that you've given us your word as an example of what to do when the trials come and the troubles come and the anxieties come.
We love you. We thank you for your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen.